Okay, we're going to begin today a fascinating sicha. It's on the Parsha Dvarim, and it's the fifth sicha of Dvarim from volume 19 of Lakute Sichas. And it's a talk that the Rebbe gave in the year of 1971. It's on, uh, and it was published in the year of 19. 80 for this uh, Parsha. It comes a continuation of the 1970 and 71 and those years when the Rebbe was on a very strong campaign of who's a Jew, this, that topic, especially for Israel, of who they recognize that people should be recognized as a Jew only according to what the Torah lays out the laws of who's a Jew. And this was a strong uh, campaign uh, one of the big problems was that somebody in the Knesset had uh, managed to, through some power, to remove one law of the Israeli uh, law, that uh, for the law of return, that if you're born to a Jewish mother, or if you convert according to Jewish law, and Jewish law is kahalacha, and they managed to take that one word out, or convert, but took out the word according to Jewish law. And that makes a major problem because people could convert not properly and think that they're a Jew and it causes lots of problems. And today we're having the after effects of the problems of damage that was done heavily then because today you have people that are the grandchildren of those people got married in the early 1970s based on this uh, uh, you know, big problem. So today we're going to discuss a fascinating law regarding the subject of food that was cooked. So we're talking now about kosher food, but it was greedy ingredients in other words, but it was cooked by a non-Jew. So obviously a Jew can't eat non-kosher. But how about food that's cooked by a non-Jew? If a non-Jew put on the fire and cooked it, there's a serious rabbinical injunction, prohibition against eating such kind of food. It's what we call a biblical law, a rabbinical, rabbinical instituted law. Sorry, the rabbis are the ones that instituted that we should not eat any food that's cooked by a non-Jew. And we're soon going to learn the two different reasons that we have of why we can't eat food if a non-Jew cooked it. Obviously, if food is not kosher, it's not even a question that you can't eat it. Here we're talking about kosher ingredients, but it was cooked in what we call today, we call bishul akum. Bishul means cooked, so it means being cooked by a non-Jew. Now, whenever the rabbis, our early sages, instituted a law, so they would, even though it's considered to be a rabbinically instituted law, nevertheless, they would show us why they, where they got this idea to make this law. In other words, what reference to an actual biblical verse do they have that will give support to their law? So in the laws of Bishul Akum, meaning Bishul Nachrim, the cooking of food by a non-Jew, we have a verse in today's Parsha, which is the support verse that the sages use. What do we have? In today's Parsha, it says the following. It says that in, in the second um, 
chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 28. Over there, the verse reads the following in regard, in relation to Moses telling the Jews that when I, that we're gonna, gotta get into the land of Israel and we have the country under the rulership of Sichon, of Sichon, and I sent a message to the king and I told him that we need to travel, all the Jews need to travel through your land to get to the land of Israel. And I would like to declare to you that you have nothing to lose by allowing us to use your roads. And Moses used these words, he says, I told Sichon, Eichel ba'kesef tishbereini, the food we will buy with money. So in other words, if we're passing through and you have a place where we could buy food, if we need anybody, any Jew will need food, we will buy the food, we'll pay for it. We're not, God forbid, stealing it or anything like that. So you have nothing to lose. It will be good for your economy if you let us travel through your, your, on your roads. For us, it will be a major shortcut. Otherwise, we have to go all the way around. Few three million people traveling around is uh, huge, huge numbers, or two million, whatever the number is. It's a lot to travel through. So he says, the food we will buy with money, and then we will eat it. And water, he says, we will buy with money, and we will drink it. Now, the sages pick up on these words. Now again, the words. Moshe says, that your food we will buy with money and eat it, and your water we will buy it and drink it. Now, what we realize from these words is that Moshe is making a comparison between food and water. And we're saying that just like water does not really change its identity when you cook it, with when you when you put a fire under water, it doesn't really change the water itself. It just makes it a hot, hotter temperature, right? But it, the water still stays the water. So too, what kind of foods are we going to use? Only the food that doesn't change by your cooking it. In other words, we're going to buy the food that we're going to cook it. Just like the water doesn't change, so too the food doesn't change. So from here we see that if the food would change by the non-Jews, then we would not be eating that kind of food. We're only going to eat the food that you're not going to change. You won't cook it. So this is where we learn the law of what we call Bishul Akim, any food that's cooked by a non-Jew, you can't eat it. That's why, by the way, sometimes people don't know enough of the laws of kosher. They think, well, why can't I go into a non-kosher restaurant? I'll eat only the kind of ingredients of foods that are kosher. The problem is, in addition to many problems, but one of the major issues is this issue called Bishul Akim. It's called the cooking of a Gentile's and we're not allowed to eat the food that was cooked by a Gentile. Now, there is a discussion in amongst the, the, the uh, halachic authorities, the Jewish law, the Paiskim, and there's a discussion the following. What happens if you have a pot 
that a non-Jew cooked in, right, and made whatever the food they made is, now that pot is considered to be that a problem because it absorbed the food that the non-Jew cooked. So the walls of this pot are now not kosher for a Jew to eat from it. Now, what happens if you, had a, you cleaned out the pot and now you went and you cooked something else in it? Let's say you made, I don't know, a pot of noodles. Do I have to worry that the noodles that I'm cooking now, or any food, is now going to suck in the flavors that are in the walls of this pot? Remember, the pot absorbed the cookings from a non-Jew, which we're not allowed to eat at. So now if you use that pot, do I have to worry that the pot, the walls, the flavors that's in that pot is going to spit out the flavor from its pot when you cook the next thing and that flavor from that non-kosher flavor will now go into, not non-kosher from non-ingredient, but not kosher for you because a guy cooked it. So now that flavor could go into my next food. Is it forbidden? In other words, how far do we go with the laws of not eating food that was cooked by a non-Jew? Is it just the food itself? Or do I have to worry that the flavor from that cooking was in the walls and that wall now could spit out that flavor into the next food that I cook? So the next food that I eat will also be called cooked flavor from the cooking from the non-Jew. So we have two opinions about this. There are some opinions that say that since the prohibition, what's the reason of the prohibition? Why we're not allowed to eat cooked food from a guy? Now, till now, we learned only the source. But what's the logical reason why? The answer is mishum chasnus. Means because you may get socially involved and you're going to get into social friendship with the person that cooked the food, and you're now going to become good friends with them. Then you're going to go out for a coffee, and then you'll go out for a walk, and then one thing will lead to the next, and you'll get married to the cook. Or to the cook's daughter, or whatever. So in other words, the worry of eating the food of a non-Jew who cooked it could lead to marrying out. That's the reason why we're not supposed to eat food cooked by a non-Jew. And again, I want to reiterate, we're not talking about non-kosher product food. That, of course, you can't eat. Right? We can't eat non-kosher. We're talking about kosher food. But since a Gentile cooked it, and you know the way it is. You walk into a house or a restaurant, you give compliments to who? To the chef. So you say, oh, you made the food. You give them a hug. Yeah, you start to become friends. So the whole concern is that you may end up marrying somebody that's there. Serious problem. Now, so there are so there are sages that say, listen, let's not be so strict. The wor- you're right, I'm worried that if I eat the food from a non-Jewish cook, I may end up, you know, so getting involved socially that could lead to marriage, but that doesn't that should not cause that the the uh, 
prohibition should extend itself that the flavors that's in the walls of this pot, I have to worry about if I use that pot for another thing that I'm going to cook myself, and then that flavor is going to spit out its flavor into the next thing. So they say you're going too far. Why? Because the second pot of food that you cooked up, the Jew cooked it up, is not going to lead to this problem of marrying out. The first pot that the non-Jew cooked, okay, I get it. You could get an affectionate connection with that and that could lead to that. But to take it to the problem that you're going to use that pot and the flavor from those walls is going to go into your food, that far, I don't have to worry that's going to lead to marrying out. That's, you don't have to worry about that far. So those sages say, you're kosher, you could use a pot that was used for bishalakim, you could use it for your own continued use in your kitchen. But that's one opinion, or some opinions. However, most opinions of the sages, mainly the base Yosef and in the Encyclopedia Talmudis over there, they bring down all the other sources that go with this following view. They say, no, the pot that was cooked, that was used for, for by a non-Jew to cook, you cannot use that pot for cooking more food after that. Why? Because they say that since the pot became a forbidden pot, in other words, it's something that the sages forbade us to benefit the pleasure from there, once the pot is considered to be an issue, then even the flavor that it will give off from the walls are part of that prohibition. You're right, it has nothing to do that I'm worried about the marriage issue, but it's a different issue. Once this became forbidden, it's forbidden and you can't take any benefit from it. Yitzchak, can it wait? Because there's a lot more information with this still. Look, just on this, why can't you kosher the pot? Oh, that's a different story. Well, if you're ready to go through the bother to kosher the pot, that's a different story. But because then you, when you kosher the pot, what you're doing is you're bringing it up to a certain temperature higher than the pot was ever used. So you're taking out what was absorbed in the walls. But here we're talking about right after that, you want to eat without koshering the pot. Is there an issue to use it further? Majority of opinions say you cannot because once this pot is deemed that it was an issue, for the sages, because the guy cooked in it, you cannot use it to cook your next food. Now, says the Rebbe, a very interesting thing. He says, this idea that once an object becomes forbidden, it's, it has a forbidden title on it, and therefore you don't want to now use it right away with something else. He says, we actually have this law in another subject. For example, a sukkah. You have a sukkah. And then you're supposed to have, um, you know, you need to have some, some uh, what do you call it, joists to cross over your ceiling or your sukkah. And then you can put your branches on it, right, to hold. Now, these wooden joists, that it has to be wooden because it has to be something that grew from the ground and it can't be metal because otherwise it can receive impurity, whatever, a different subject. But it has to be wood. So let's say I take wood sticks. How fat, wide could those sticks be? So there's a rule about this, and the Mishnah tells this to us, it's a very nice laws about sukkah, and basically it tells you like this, look, if you have a wood stick that this size, no problem. It, it, I don't have to worry that this stick is going to look like a roof. It's just a stick. 
What if I take uh, a boards that are four hand breaths wide? Hand breaths is an adult fist with your thumb up a little bit. So four of these. Take that about maybe 14 inches wide. Okay? What if I take these boards and I, and I put them on top of my ceiling on my schach? I put one here, one here, all the way. So the law is, if it's the size of four hand fists wide, let's say about this 15 inches wide, something like that, then it's going to start to look like a roof. And you're not supposed to have a roof on a sukkah. It's supposed to be like a temporary kind of roof. So you can't, that is no good. So you can't use boards that are four feet, four hand breaths in width. Now, what if I say, you know what? This is the only wood I have, these, these you know, strips of plywood. Let me take it, and I'll, instead of it being like this, I'll stand them up like this. So what's the problem? It's not going to look like a roof. It's going to be like this, and I'll put a bunch of them like this across my top of my roof. The law is you're not allowed to use that. Once this piece has four hand breaths in width, you cannot use it even if it's this way. Why? Again, because once this piece of board has the name that it's not kosher, you cannot use it even if I find another way to flip it up. So he's using that as a source idea. Same thing to our subject here with the pot. Once the pot is deemed, the bishul akim, it's deemed that the guy cooked from it and I can't use that food from it, which means that the flavor that's in the walls I can't use, it's deemed to be forbidden and you can't use it until for the next cookings of, of food, even if the Jew does it. The Rebbe brings down from the Ragachavar, the famous Ragachavar, we spoke about him in Lent in the past. He was a genius of a Torah scholar. He lived in, passed away in the 1930s. Uh, he was the rabbi in, uh, in, in Riga, in Latvia. He explains that something that is deemed to be forbidden by a decree, in other words, for something else, in other words, this board, let's say, is forbidden because it could be like a roof, meaning the essence of it now is forbidden, then not just when it's now forbidden. In other words, where the reason is that it's a board and now it looks like a roof, even if you don't use it for the looking of a roof, even if you just flip it up the other way, it's once it's deemed forbidden, you can't use it anymore. So to an hour case, the flavor that's in it, the same thing, it's like the essence of it is no good. Okay, so this clarifies to us, number one, the source of Bishul Akim, Bishul Nachim, Bishul Nachim, food that was cooked by a non-Jew, the source is from our Parsha, where Moshe uses food and drinking that we will not take it without buying it from you. And since he used both things, just like water doesn't change through fire, so too the cooking, that we were going to take only food that was not cooked because we don't want it to have changed. Once you, you cooked it, the Goyim cooked it, then we're not going to take that. So you see his similarity with water, that's the source. And the logical reason why the sages are worried is this can lead to having getting too close to the cook and you may marry the cook. Or things of marriage could come into play. Now says the Rebbe, a fascinating thing. He brings from the tractate of the Talmud called Avodah Zarah. And the Rebbe here said that the Fabrengen, and at that Yutas Kis the Fabrengen in 71, he said that, maybe it was the end of 1970, that year, he said that he's going to make a conclusion of a tractate of the Talmud, as he always does 
at the Yutis Kislev for bringing because it's a custom amongst Chassidim that everybody does one track to the Talmud a year. And since you divide up the whole set of the Talmud by many, if you do one track, then it's as if you finish the whole thing because you're part of a bunch of people that finish the whole set, the whole Talmud. Okay, so he said he's going to say a conclusion of a tractate of Avodazar, which means the whole subject about idol worship, and he's going to make a conclusion of one tractate. That's why he said he never made a conclusion of that in public, I guess, at least. So he's going to do it. So he's going to bring us here a beautiful story that's quoted in the end of the tractate of Avodazar, the laws of uh, the subject of idol worship, and he's going to show you an amazing connection to this whole subject of the cooking. So he says, it seems like that the source for the opinion of most opinions of authority, of halacha authority, is where do they get this logical, this, this ideas about the, the prohibition of cooking and I can't use that pot for, 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 not for the next thing because it will come out of the walls and they'll worry about, about marriage. The source of this comes from a story in the Talmud. Because over there, it speaks about how a person could kosher a knife that was used for food that was being cooked by a non-Jew. In other words, food that was cooked, he take, after it's cooked, he takes a knife while the food is hot and you cut it. So now the knife has absorbed the flavors of that food that the guy cooked. So now, in the laws of utensils that become not kosher for you to use, there's two issues. One is if your utensil by mistake or even on purpose, whatever, but if it was used for non-kosher food, for that, for sure, the only way to kosher that is to go through the regular koshering process. Like Irving brought up before, the regular kosher processing, you cook up a, a pot of boiling hot water, you would put it into the sizzling hot water, that's how you kosher something. That's one of, one of the ways. Now, he says that how about from kosher food? The only problem is that a non-Jew used it. So nothing, no flavor of non-kosher food is in there, is in this knife. It's only that it was used from cooked food from the guy. So if you want to use such this knife, and you want to use it only for cold food, because hot food is another issue, because if I use it for hot food, hot could take out the flavor that's in this knife. But what if I want to use this knife to use it to eat kosher, to eat or to cut cold food? So then there's a set of laws called uktsin, and you take this knife and you go to a plant or in the backyard and you, you, you put it into sand or earth 10 times, Right? And by then, by, by stuffing it into earth ten times, if there's any substance on it, of course, it will get scratched off. And if there's flavor on it, it will also get pulled out by the sand. That's the way you, you could kosher it for this. Now, it, whenever there's a subject of a story or something, if there are two ways to learn the scenario of the story then you look for questions on the story and the way that you could learn it that makes less questions is the more appropriate situation. In other words here, how do we know that the subject of the story we're going to be mentioning in a moment, 
We're going to mention the story. How do we know we're talking about that it was a Goyish person that cooked and used this utensil? Maybe it was trefa food that was used for this utensil. How do I know that it was just from the cooking the problem? Maybe it was non-kosher food. So he's going to say because many answers to difficult questions on the story will be answered only if you say that it would this this knife became problematic through the cooking of a non-Jew, but not because of non-kosher food. So because in the story you're going to see, the main thing is you're going to see that a king put it into earth ten times, and that could only be from the cooking of the non-Jew. So here he says, what's the story? The story is the following. There was a person, a sage, his name was... Mar Yehuda. Now, Mar usually means Mister, like a great, respectable person. The Rebbe brings down the footnote here that that uh, Rashi brings down some places that it was Rabbi Yehuda. So, okay, either it was a great sage Yehuda or it was the Rabbi Yehuda. So, this Yehuda, Rabbi, let's call him the Rabbi Yehuda. He, together with one of his servants, or you could call it maybe a slave, but it was you know you, usually you could call it a slave. Uh, a non-Jewish slave that he had. And this non-Jewish slave, his name is Bati Bar Tuvi. That was the name of this guy. Now, before I go into the story, I just want to preface something about laws when it comes to buying a non-Jewish slave. There are many laws in Parsha Mishpatim for the Jewish slave and the non-Jewish slave, how you have to uh, work with them, what are their commitments, what's the, what's the owner's commitment, all kinds of laws. But what's relevant to here is the laws for what's called the Eved Knani, a non-Jewish Canaanite um, servant, not servant, but more the, the, the slave. He, in order for a Jew to own such a kind of person, you could buy him on the marketplace, but... Since he's working in your house, he has to commit to conversion. Now, what conversion should is he going to do? So he has to be circumcised. He has to commit to keep Shabbos. He has to commit not to eat uh, pork. He has to commit um, to not eat food cooked by a non-Jew. Okay? He has a lot of laws he has to do. But since he's a slave, he's not at, at this stage, he's not a full Jew yet. So it's kind of like a conversion process, you probably call that today. He's in a conversion process. It's kind of like a semi-conversion, but he's not fully a Jew 100% to the point that he should be allowed to marry a Jew. That's obviously the highest completion level that he could actually marry a Jew. So he cannot marry a Jew. However, the day that he gets freed from his boss, his boss frees him. And how does he free him? The same way we have a get called the get of for a divorce between husband and wife. There's also called a get shikhur, a get for freedom, a divorce certificate that he frees this Canaanite slave. Now, the moment this Canaanite slave is freed, he's now open to marry a Jew. He's considered to be a full-fledged Jew. So in other words, he's in the land of Israel. He's working for a Jew. 
and he's with all the laws that are involved in, in a slave, which basically means you don't have any ownership of yourself, anything you find belongs to your, your master and so on. Of course, the master has to take care of you and so on. Now, during that time, because he's not a Jew, he is allowed to be with non-Jewish women. Even though he did so many steps of a conversion, he's allowed to be with a Shifcha Knanis. A maidservant, a woman, he, he can be there with her. And he can have children with her. And the children are going to belong to the boss, to the owner. You're allowed to do that for many reasons that the halacha gives permission for this whole thing. Not for, we're not going into all those details now, but this is the fact. Now, we're going to see in the story fascinating stuff, but including one detail I just want to throw in now, and that is what happens if a person was freed by his boss, but he didn't actually get the certificate of freedom, the certificate of divorce. So, you're not anymore connected to your boss, technically, because he said, no, you're done, uh, great job, thank you, go home, bye. But he never gave you an actual certificate. So this is going to be a major issue that we're going to deal with this now. Now let's do the story first. So Mar Yehuda and Bati Bartuvi were sitting at a meal together with a king of Persia. And this king's name was Shavur Malka, the Persian king. Historically, there was two kings, Shavur Malka. So we're talking now around... 200 years or so after the destruction of the temple. So let's go back around 1800 years ago or so. There was one good king, a very learned Torah scholar, not Jewish, but you know, knew a lot of Jewish law. And that's the one we're talking about now. There was another one that was really cruel to Jews, which is not our subject there. So they were sitting at a meal with Shavar Malka. They brought into the king on his table, they put a plate with an esrog, an esrog there. The king took a knife and he cut the esrog and he ate a piece. Then he cuts another piece and he gave it to Bati Bar Tuvi, which is this Canaanite slave person, again, who accepts all the laws. By the way, more of the laws are he accepts all all the uh, negative commandments, all 365 negative commandments, and all positive commandments that the women today have to do, which are, except for the positive commandments that don't have, they're not time-bound. Mitzvahs that are not time-bound, women are technically exempt from doing that. So yes, accept all that. That means you're very much practicing a life as a Jew, like almost completely. So then the king goes and cuts a piece and gives it to Bati Bartuvi. Then the king takes his knife, this knife, and he goes and he pokes it into the ground ten times to kosher it. That's what the Gemara says there, that he did it ten times to kosher it. That's what I mentioned before, to kosher something that was cooked used for cooking by a non-Jew, you have to poke it in 10 times into the ground to now make it kosher for a Jew to use. So the king did that. And then he cuts another piece and gives it to Mar Yehuda, to this Rabbi Yehuda. So Bati Bartuvi, when he sees that, 
he says to the king, what? And what's with me? What do you think? I'm not a Jew? Like, why do you think that I don't care? Why did you give me a piece before you put it into the ground ten times? And only for him, for my, my master, Yehuda, for him you, you, made, it, you made it kosher tonight? So the, we have two versions of what happened in the response. One says is that the king answered, he said, listen here. You, you, I know well. I see, I could see in you that you're not so meticulous with your religious observance. But Rabbi Yehuda, I could see that he's a very scrupulous, careful person with his observance of Jewish law. So that's why I went the extra step for him. One answer. Another answer that we have is, some say that what happened was that the king said to Bati, he said, what's with you? Do you not remember what you did last night? Wow, what did he do last night? So Rashi tells us that they stayed overnight last night in an inn. They, they arrived to Persia and they stayed in an inn. Now the custom of Persia was that whoever stays overnight in their hotels, they would give you for some companionship overnight, they would give you a Persian girl. That was their custom of the land. You, know, you didn't just get a hotel and get a coffee. You even had who to have it with, you know? So that's the way they did it. So last night, when you guys checked into the inn, the Persian girls were brought to you and Bati accepted the companion that was coming to his hotel. But Rabbi Yehuda said, no way. Now, simply understood, what's the difference of the two answers? The difference is that the king, Shavur Malka is the king's name. So Shavur Malka, according to the first opinion, he said that I'm not so sure, Bati, that you are so careful and meticulous in your observance. But according to the second answer, he was very clear that I'm sure you're not particular in your observance. You accepted the girl. So that's the simple difference of the two answers. The first answer, he says, you, I don't know, I, you, I, you know, I'm not so sure that you're so careful and stuff, so I, didn't, I don't have to be so careful serving you this food. And for you, I have to be careful. The second answer says, oh, you, you forgot what happened last night. You accepted the girls. I know that you're not meticulous. That's the story there. Now, the Rebbe has a question, and he says, since Bati accepted these Persian women, he accepted them to his hotel and he certainly sinned on a major prohibition. Why, according to the first opinion, did the king say that I'm not so sure if you're particular or not? What do you mean? In the second opinion, it was clear that he did something wrong. And you can't say that the first opinion is arguing with the second opinion of what happened. That in other words, in the first opinion, we're not so sure he did something wrong. The second opinion is absolute sure that his guy sinned. Because then that would be an argument in fact, in factuality. 
or we call in Hebrew terminology, a machloket bimetzius. You can't have an argument on fact. You can have an argument on theory, but not on fact. We could, or on assumption. We could assume that you're, you're a sinner. We could not assume, but once it's a fact, it's a fact. You accepted this person into your room. That, that, that's a fact. So why, according to the first opinion, once he accepted the women in Tim, it's clear that he's a problem case and he doesn't follow the laws. So why do they say that we're not? he wasn't sure if he was careful in his observance? So we have a commentary in the Talmud. If you ever to open up a book of the Talmud, it's a very interesting how the Talmud is laid out. The Talmud has in the middle a column, which is the Talmud, and then on the two sides, it's covered with commentary. On the inside of a page is Rashi's commentary. On the outside of the page is the commentary called Tosfis. Tosfis basically was a group of sages that studied the Talmud so inside out and they wrote commentary. So all their commentary of these Tosfis people were combined into one commentary called Tosfis. If you ever want to test if somebody's a little bit knowledgeable, you could say, to, oh, you went to Israel? Did you ever go to the burial place of Tosfis? And if the person says, yeah, yeah, I was there, you know that they don't know what they're talking about because it's not one person, it's many. So that's, you know, a little trivia. And by the way, just as a side little interesting thing, my grandfather once showed me, he collected old uh, original books and the, one of the earliest Talmud, Talmud printings of the 1526, he had a book of the Talmud and he showed me that each page of the Talmud the first earliest printings, they had they changed it. One page, Rashi was on the inside of the page and Tosus on the outside. The next page, Tosus in the inside and Rashi on the outside. I guess the first printings, they weren't sure yet how to structure it. Should Rashi be in the inside or outside, you know? So, and it's just interesting. Even the layouts are always fascinating, every detail. So, these commentaries called the Tosus. In the Tosus, it says there that... Actually, Bati, the servant Bati, actually did not do a sin by taking in these non-Jewish Persian girls into his room. It's not a problem for him. Why? Because as we said earlier, a non-Jewish slave, even though he does a lot of process stuff of accepting Torah mitzvahs, but he's not a full Jew. And he's allowed to have a Shifcha Knanis, which means a non-Jewish woman. Now, the issue here is that he was considered to be freed, but he never had the divorce. And that becomes a lucky question. Since he was freed from the slave, and I said before, if he would be, once he's freed with the document, he's completely divorced from his master, he automatically becomes a full Jew, and now he can go marry a Jew. But the question is, what's his status now? He got the notification verbally from his boss that he's going to be free, that he's free, but he, his boss never gave him the document for whatever reason. We call it a document that was delayed. His get was delayed. So Taisha says, listen here, since he's the servant, a slave, a non-Jewish slave, he's allowed to have this non-Jewish woman, and he had a freedom from his boss, but it wasn't with a 
the, the, the divorce document. Therefore, for him, it was actually permitted. They, I, I saw someone they use the English translation for such a delayed document, uh, indentured, indentured uh, um, document. So that's this get. So according to Taisvis, he, what he did was actually not considered a sin for him. Now, Rashi, on the other hand, disagrees with Tosfis in this subject here. Because basically, the issue is like this. The person got notification that he's freed slave, but didn't have the divorce. So we say, takana, he's stuck. Rashi says he's stuck completely. He can't marry yet a Jew, but he also can't marry or live with the non-Jewish woman. Because when Rashi says, takana, means there's no hope for him, he's stuck. Until he gets his, get his divorce in his hand, he's stuck. He can't go both, he can't go, he's stuck, can't go marry nobody. But Taisvis says, when it says, takana, there's no hope, it means there's no hope yet for him to marry a Jew. doesn't mean that he can't be with a non-Jew. So you see right away how these sages right here have a different view. Yet they're not arguing that the, of the word. The word says, takana, this is sorry for you. But what does that mean, sorry? Sorry completely or just sorry in one area? Right? So that's that argument from them. Now, we have a, three que- a, a question here. According to Taisvis, that says that it was permitted for Bati to be, to be with this Persian woman, and he didn't do any, he, wasn't, he didn't sit on any prohibition, why did Shavor Malka, the king Shavor, throw it in his face by saying, hey, do you remember what you did last night and you forget? The king was trying to rub it in that you're such a sinner. Well, all of a sudden now you need to have my knife should be kosher for you. You're a sinner. Do you not remember what you did last night? But one second, according to Taisa, he didn't do anything wrong. So why did the king, you know, Throw it at his face like that and say, hey, you know, you're a lowlife. You, you know, forgot what you did last night. According to Tosis, he didn't do anything wrong. So there's another commentary on this that explains this answer. This is a commentary called the Ritva. Ritva is an acronym for his name. His name was Rabbeinu Yamtov Ashvili. He came, he lived in Spain, in Seville, Spain, and he passed away in the year of 1314. He lived from 1260 to 1340. Now the Ritva explains this and he says that, you know what the problem was? Why did the King Shavur rub it into him? Ah, you did last night, now you want to be kosher all of a sudden? So really it was because the king didn't know the laws. He didn't know all the laws. He was a learned man, clearly. He clearly, the king knew that to co- how to kosher this knife by putting it into the ground 10 times. He knew the law. But he didn't know the status of Bati completely. He didn't realize that Bati was one of these cases. He was freed, but he wasn't, didn't have his divorce, right? Therefore, he assumed, since you're not careful with the Persian women, you're probably not careful either with koshering the utensils. 
And just like you are supposed to be careful not to eat pork and not to eat nevela, nevela, shtick nevela means from an animal that just dropped dead. You're not allowed to eat that meat either. A Jew's not allowed to eat that. Has to be only from shechted and so on. So, and you have to, you, you should know better. You're not allowed to eat from non kosher vessels. So, since I see you weren't careful with the Persian women, he didn't know that Bati was allowed to be with them. Says the Rebbe, this answer does not sit well at all. Because we know stories about Shavur Malka, this King Shavur, that this king was an expert in Jewish laws. That's what it's brought down in Rashi and Tosis in the tractate Baba Metzia. It speaks about this king there. It says he was an expert. So it can't, doesn't make sense to say that he didn't know about the status, about that this kind of servant would be permitted for these Persian girls. And it's also difficult to say that he didn't know Bati's status. In other words, you're telling me, the Ritva is telling me that he didn't know that this status is, is allowed to be with this non-Jewish girl. But one second, first of all, he, he knows all the laws. It must be he knew that law too. And to tell me that he didn't know that Bati was in that status also doesn't make sense because we have already a story in another tractate of the Talmud, the Baba Metziah, over there it says, sorry, in Kedushin, over there it says, that Rabbi Yehuda once announced in public about different people that have deficiencies. You know, the rabbinical courts have to know what's going on. You know, you have to know this person, he's got that story, that family background. You have to know things because they have to know the laws. So Rabbi Yehuda once, when he announced about different people with deficiencies, he announced that Babi Bartavi is a slave that was freed but never got his divorce certificate. So you can't tell me that the king didn't know about his status. So we're back to our question. Why did the king throw it in his face and rub it in? Oh, you know what you did last night? If, according to Tosius, it was permitted for him to be with this non-Jewish girl. So that's our big question so far. Now we have more questions on details of the story. More questions. If you say that Bati took the Esrog from King Shavur, like it's clear in the story, that it wasn't because he wasn't careful of a utensil that was used for cooking of a, from a guy. It wasn't because he didn't know the law that you can't use utensils that were used for cooking of a guy. It could be very simple that he was in a tough position. He couldn't not eat something that the king gave him. That would be called rebelling against the king in his face. If the king gives you something to eat, you say, no, 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 I'm not so hungry. You can't do that. So if the king gave him this piece of the Esra, it would be a question of life or death. He had no choice. And life or death, you have to go for life at all costs. So that could be simply the reason why Bati ate the Esra. Nothing to do with that he didn't care about anything else. And we don't have, and it's not a question why Shavur the king made the, the knife kosher for Yehuda because he said, and, and then, and only after that, but he said, What, am I not a Jew? 
We don't have to worry about that. You could just say that Bati ate it because he was worried not to be rebellious against the king. But then we could ask the following few questions on King Shavur. Number one, since King Shavur would not want to what we what we call it in halacha, you know, you don't you're not allowed to put a stumbling block in front of a, a blind person, right? So he doesn't want to put a stumbling for something that's prohibited. Why doesn't he want to do that? For a person that he's not sure if the person is careful or not in his practice, because he knows that Bati is careful from prohibited things. So in other words, because the king says, I'm not sure about you that you're so careful in doing, in practicing all the laws. Why would the king purposely put a stumbling block in front of him and feed him this food? You, you, according to the first answer, we said that the king said, I'm not sure about you but I am sure about Yehuda that he's so careful about doing mitzvahs right. So for him, I was careful to make his the knife kosher. But you, I'm not so careful. Okay, let's say you're not sure about him. But why did you put the stumbling and force him to a piece of non-kosher food? Used from a knife that wasn't kosher to use. So the question is, why would the king purposely put the stumbling block in front of this guy? Question one on the king. Number two. Even according to the second opinion, that Bucky did a terrible sin last night with that woman. Either according to Rashi that it's 100% he was not allowed to do it. Or even according to Tysus that he was allowed to do what he did last night. It's not a reason that you should put the stumbling in front of him with another prohibition. In other words, let's say that he did do a sin last night with this Persian girl. Maybe his evil inclination got the better of him. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't eat kosher. I'm sure many of us know people that in certain areas they're more relaxed and certain areas they're still careful. There are people that could, are capable to do a certain sin with another woman, even though it's a terrible sin. But when it comes to kosher food, they still do that, right? I don't know if this is a good, the best example, but you do find cases of people that are in jail for whatever crime it is. Now, those that are innocent, they fell in jail terrible. And if a person did do the crime and they're in jail, we still find that a lot of people in jail, they still only eat kosher food. And the law in America and Canada is that we have to feed them, we have to give them kosher food. In other words, just because he did what he did last night, Bati, why do you think that he now, he, 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 you don't care that he's going to eat the non-kosher food, so I'm going to give him food that he's not allowed to eat? And by the way, the whole idea of the prohibition against sleeping with a non-Jew not, not with, with, in other words, going without marriage and all that. According to the sages, if you do this in a way where nobody knows about it, it's a total secret of something that you fell to a low point, it's a prohibition only by the sages. In other words, it's not a biblical pro- prohibition at that level. 
It's considered to be a rabbinical prohibition. This is not giving any allowance because it's a serious, you know, prohibition by the sages. But just to go live with another woman in quiet and secret, it's a rabbinical prohibition. But not eat kosher food is a biblical prohibition. So even if Bati did something terrible last night with the woman, why does the king feel the license that he's allowed to give him now food that he's not allowed to eat? It's two different ish, two different sins. Just because you did one, therefore I'm going to let you go do all sins? I mean, come on. Number three, third question is, even stronger now, since King Shavur, anyways, took the knife and put it into the earth ten times for Rabbi Yehuda. He could have just done it a couple minutes earlier and did it for Bati as well. In other words, you, for Bati, I'm not going to go the effort to do the knife. But for Yehuda, I will. But one second. You could have just made the kosher knife one time a few minutes earlier before Bati, you cut it for Bati, and it would have been kosher for both of them. Why did he delay in putting the knife into the ground before till Yehuda? He could have just done it for both. And everybody would have a kosher meal and shalom. So to explain this, by way of introduction, that the prohibition from a knife was, again, let's remind ourselves, was not because of non-kosher food. That this non, the knife would have maybe absorbed non-kosher, let's say, fats from non-kosher meat into the knife. We're not talking about that because we're talking about in a king's palace. In the presence of a king, nothing is missing in a king's palace. You can't say by a king that he uses the same knife that he uses to cut his fruit. His esrog is the same knife, the knife that he uses for the meat. In a king's palace, he has special knives for the meat. He has special knives for your fruit platters. Special knives there. And we're to, and if you if you have a, obviously an esrog is going to be cooked. You can't really eat it like that raw. Right? It's not so edible. So clearly, for sharp cooked foods. That he uses the knives for the fruit. It's not a question that this knife was used for non-kosher food. It's the question is only on Bishule Nachrim that it was cooked and used by his non-Jewish staff. He himself was a non-Jewish king. And he used that that knife was used for the cookings of sharp uh, foods and uh, by the non-Jews. So now we can understand, by understanding again this principle, that this knife is not that it was non-kosher food, it was just that the non-Jew used this knife, which would be used only for fruits, to understood the opinion that Shavur, the king Shavur said, do you remember what you did last night? The reason why this is prohibited, what's the reason why you're not allowed to cook? Why you're not allowed to eat from utensils? And the food that was cooked by a guy. We said before, it's because I'm worried that you're going to end up marrying those people that cooked it. Or their daughters. Since Bati was allowed to be married to those daughters. So there was no, for him, for Bati, there's no issue, no issue with Bishul Akum, with food that's cooked by a guy. When am I worried for food that's cooked by a guy if there's potentially that I may marry their kid or them. 
somebody in their family, their friend, whatever. But for him, he was allowed to marry them. He wasn't yet a Jew, but he's not a full Jew. So there was no worry for him. So he could eat, according to the second opinion that said, look what he did last night, no problem. If he could really do that, that means we, because we're not worried about him. He doesn't have the worry that we said of why you have to be careful in such kind of foods. And even though we accept the fact, like we said earlier in the, first, in the beginning of the subject, we said that once something becomes prohibited, it's prohibited to the essence of it. He says over here, it's not the same. It's not, it's not, you can't really compare it. Why? Besides for the fact that the essence of it that became prohibited it only got, is only when the name of it becomes, it becomes a non-kosher prohibited item. For example, we said earlier, the schach, the board, the board itself gets a name that you can't use it anymore because of the worry that it's like a roof. But when you say about something that intellectually the prohibition is to begin with not there because to begin with there's no prohibition there. Like in other words, like we said, like we say many times, there are certain situations that you don't have a prohibition of the cookings of the Gentile because there's no worry that I may marry them. Like in this case, there was no worry for Bati to marry him because he was allowed to be married to them. I heard once uh, an example of another... Um, Another halacha I once heard, an example, it doesn't bring it down in the sicha, but there's a law in the Talmud that if you have a, po- a, a, a bottle or a cup of water that was not covered and you left the cup overnight, you're not allowed to drink that water the next day. Why? Because we're worried that a snake got into it or the demon from the snake, the, 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 the poison went into the water. So therefore, the sages prohibited drinking water if it wasn't covered because the poison of a snake could have gotten in there overnight. So the Talmud says that this law, it's not like, oh, once we made a law, so that's the law and the essence of this idea, and the law stays forever. It says it only exists, that law, at the time when snakes was a normal thing all over the place. Now we don't have snakes all over the place, so there's no problem if you had water left over on your sink, on your counter, it doesn't say, hey, have it tomorrow. So in other words, when do you say that the essence in it is forever? If the circumstance of what it, the reason why it was prohibited is forever, like the boards of the sukkah. But in the case with non-kosher, with food that was cooked, kosher food that was cooked by a non-Jew, it's only going to be if I have the worry of why the sages made the worry, the law, which is to be married. So Bhatti could marry them. Now, this, that the prohibition stays. means that there's no worry anymore regarding the cookings from the guy. And it could lead to marriage. But since the essence of the prohibition of marriage is there, then you have to worry. But by Bhatti, as we just said, you don't have to worry anymore. So too, we could explain why did the king Shavur say, do you remember what he did last night, even according to Rashi, who says that it was, it's forbidden for Bhatti to marry, to live with a non-Jewish woman. Since the prohibition on the cooking of the guy is only to prevent you from marrying the daughters, he says that that teaches you that there's no must 
to protect Bati from this extra step that he shouldn't marry them. In other words, because he was in a mixed status, because he was a freed slave but didn't have the contract, you could, you could basically say that you don't have the essence of the prohibition in his, in his case. That means like this. Let's clarify this. According to Toysavis that said that he, Bati is allowed to marry the non-Jew and there's no worry of marrying the non-Jew, therefore there's no issue, there's no worry of the cooking because I'm not worried if he'll marry the cook's daughter. No problem because for him it's okay. But according to, and, and according to Rashi who says that it's prohibited for marry, if I won't worry about this, in other words, if I'm not worried about the prohibition for him of marrying because he can't marry, I'm also not worried about the worry of the cooking. So in other words, the whole thing falls up, falls off here of the worrying about cooking for Bati. Now based on this, we could explain that according to the first opinion that said that why did Shavar Malka why did he not say for certainty that look what you do? You not remember what you did last night? The first answer said, "I don't know for sure if you're so careful about mitzvahs." Why didn't he just say, "I know for sure you're not careful"? He should have said it with certainty. The reason is because there's another reason why we're not allowed to eat food that's cooked by a non-Jew. One reason is what we said before because the worry about future marriage. But there's another reason, and that is. A Jew should not accustom himself with eating and drinking with a non-Jews because you may end up eating things that are not spiritually pure. You may eat things that are what we call tamay. So that's already a different reason. This is a reason if you, if you hang out too much and eat with non-Jews all the time, you're going to end up eating even kosher food, but not that it's, it's not at a kosher status. Like the issue with impurity and impurity, which we had mainly in the time of temple times. So, this is the second reason of why we can't eat what we call bishul akum. Now we could say like this, that according to both opinions, according to both opinions of the Gemara, we have, it's connected to the two reasons. In other words, the opinion that the king said, number one answer was that I'm not sure if you're careful in mitzvahs. The second answer was, do you not remember what you did last night? Fits to the both reasons. According to the opinion that you say that the reason is because I'm worried about marriage, that has to do with the second answer. Look what you did last night. According to the opinion that said, do you... You're not, I'm not so sure that you're careful in mitzvahs. That goes with the other reason why you can't eat the cooked food from a non-Jew because you may end up getting used to eating foods that are not pure for you to eat. Well, we still have a question. And what's our question now is, according to the first opinion that Shavar Malka said, that I'm not so sure that you're careful in mitzvahs. How could Shavar Malka purposely feed him something that's not kosher for him to eat 
if you're not sure if he's careful in mitzvahs, what were you thinking, king? And another thing that's still not perfectly clear, which she says we need to still understand, is the second opinion, which you, according to Rashi, he's not. A, you do not remember what you did last night. You did a sin. You were with this Persian woman. It's true that Bati was not careful with those women. And therefore, I see that he's not careful about other things too. But at least the king could have easily koshered the knife before for both of them. That step the king could have done with no extra effort because he was doing it anyways. So to explain this, he says like this. And this is the, the op- eye-opener to this, to this picture that will help us understand why the king did what he did and why these Jews behaved in the way they did. The law is that somebody that's in charge, you have a, a, like an, a, an authoritative position in your community and you're responsible for your congregation or your people, it says that you should not do work in front of three people. In other words, people will start to disrespect you. If you're a respectable person, you don't want to see that guy, you know, fixing the toilet, right? Sweeping up the hallways. If that person is, is in charge of a very respectable position, it's not respectful for that person to get his hands dirty in front of at least three people because that's considered to be like a little bit in public. Okay, one other person sees you get on top of your desk and you change your light bulb. All right. But if everybody starts seeing that you do this kind of work, they'll stop respecting you. They'll start calling you out to fix that, do that, fix the phone, fix the internet, you know. They'll start calling out the stuff. So the person that's what's called the parnes, he's in charge of the community, he shouldn't refrain from doing that. Now, obviously... For a king, a king for sure has to refrain from doing work. A king is not allowed to do any work in front of people because then people will lose their respect for him. Now, even though King Shabur was a non-Jew, still the law is, and it even makes sense logically, that even by a non-Jew, especially when the non-Jewish king by himself, is obviously... And every non-Jew is also obligated to respect the kings of the nations. So in other words, even though the king may be a non-Jew, we're still obligated to respect him. Just because he's a non-Jew, he's still a king. What's the reason why we don't want a king to do work in front of people? The simple reason is because that will help to the civilization of your country. Like the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, in chapter 3 there it says, that if people will not have fear of the kingdom, then one person will eat up another person alive. Right? You need to have authority. If people don't respect the authority, then there's a lot of trouble. And B'nai Noach are also obligated, in other words, people that follow the laws of Noah, the seven Noah laws, are also obligated in this thing to give respect, just like Jews have to do it, to give respect to authority. So everybody basically has to do that. comes out that because of the honor of the king, Shavur, the king, Shavur Malka, was not allowed to take the knife and put it into the ground in front of Bati. 
Emar Yehuda. He wasn't allowed to do that because the king is not allowed to do work in the presence of three people and him and the two Jews or the servant and the Yehuda and the servant. And since Bati ate the Esrog even without the knife going into the ground he would not be sinning on any prohibition. On the contrary, he was obligated to eat it because he's worried for rebelling against the king. And he needs to, he needs to be uh, you know, right, respectful to the king. Therefore, Shavar Malka was allowed to give him the esrog without putting it into the ground. But... But Shavu, why did he, why did he put it in the ground for Yehuda? Because he said, Yehuda, I see he's a different kind of guy. Oh, this man, he's so careful about Jewish law. I could see in him that even no matter how much he respects me, no matter what I serve in front of him, he's not going to bend. He's a very, very strong Jew when it comes to his Jewish values. And he's not going to eat something that there's a question about it if it's kosher or not. I could see that in him. And therefore, the king says that even though I'm not supposed to do work, when it comes to him, I'm going to do the work. And how much more so if we say that we're speaking about Rabbi Yehuda, which the Gemara says, the Talmud says about him, that he was from one of the earliest people that he went on self-sacrifice to sanctify Hashem's name, even on things where there was no obligation to go that far to self-sacrifice. But he did. So when the king sees of that about Yehuda, he says, for him, nothing that I'm going to be able to serve him will fly. If he's not sure that this knife was maybe used by a non-Jew to use it in their cooking of, of fruit, he's not going to use it. Therefore, the king now at this point became forced to go put it into the ground to make it kosher. But for Bati, he says, like Kim Levi I'm not so sure about you. I'm doubtful if you're even careful in any prohibitions, God forbid. Will Bati go on a self-sacrifice? Well, the king says, as a king, I am not allowed to forgo the honor of a king. So I'm not allowed to go put it into the ground for you. So you understand, all of a sudden now we're understanding here that the law was so important even to the king. The king understood that he can't lower himself to do work if it's just a question if this person's going to eat it or not. When it comes to Yehuda, he's so strong in his values and he goes on self-sacrifice for every little detail. So over him, I can't worry. For him, it's a different story. For him, I could forgo my honor as king. Says the Rebbe, from all of this, we have amazing takeaway lesson in the service to Hashem. Here we have a story about King Shavor, that he was sitting with two Jews, two people that were obligated in the respect for the king. One of them, in fright in the presence of the king, of a non-Jewish king, and therefore he ate from the fruit that the king gave him and cut it without koshering the knife first. And yes, Bati is able to justify it in his mind that, oh, I'm in the presence of a king. I could die if I don't eat what he gives me. 
and the other guy, and and this sorry, this butty guy who who did, is kind of like kind of like a Jew, right? But he doesn't have this freedom divorce certificate by the king. In the king's eyes, the king wasn't going to kill him, but he froze. Butty froze in scare and fright. But the other guy, the king saw that I could see in him right away that he's not going to do it at all. He's not going to do. Why? Because by him, even if it's the honor of the king, and even if it's a matter of a question of rebellious and the king may make him a head shorter, he was so strong with himself that even the king found favor in the way he behaved. The king found favor in the way his status was. And on the contrary, King Shavur himself forgave on his own honor, took the knife with the effort and went to the ground and put it in and he wanted to serve this Yehuda. Seemingly, he could have at least called in some of his servants and told them to poke it into the ground. Or he could have even gave the knife to Yehuda and said, you go poke it into the ground. But the reason why he didn't do that because when the guy sees that by a Jew who's God-fearing, who will be very careful and meticulous in any prohibition to the point that he would even be willing to give away his life for this. Then the guy sees it as an honor and an honor for the king to go and serve him. And not just in any way, but to go give him something, help him with his body, with all the extra steps that it takes and get this esrog to be kosher with this kosher knife. And when we behave in this kind of way of this story at the end of the tractate of Avodazaro, idol worship subject, then we give up and we nullify the concept of idol worship of the entire world. And it becomes that that God's presence of sovereignty is all over the entire world. As we say, that Hashem should be recognized as the king in the entire earth, Bikar of Mamish, speedily in our days. And that's the point and conclusion of this thing, of being strong. If we're stronger, if you're weak, yes, maybe you could get away and justify, you may be right. But if you're strong in your principle, people will respect a person who respects themselves and their standards.